Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message. It is so good being here today. Um, I'm from, I live in Belmore, uh, and I teach out of Massapequa, and uh, this morning it cost me $750 to get here in gas. Um, Wasn't too bad at all, so excited to be here with you. And it's so funny that it it falls today on, um, on, uh, oh my gosh, the clock thing, daylight savings time. Yeah, you're you're in trouble. I can't even think of that term. Like, what's this guy going to teach us? Because I always avoid preaching this Sunday. I always do. I always give it to some rookie at the church. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't want to lose that hour and then try to get through. We have four services. Two feels like a vacation. This is beautiful for me. And and then I realized, wait wait a second, Keith, what'd you do to me having me here? And I am an overseer, um, and I take that very seriously. For me, an overseer of a church is someone who's going to really invest time in that pastor, the lead pastor, the staff, the church, the direction of the church. Uh, And not that we tell Keith what to do, but that we cover him in prayer and Amy in prayer and uh, and really try to give as much advice from our experience as possible. And so when Keith asked me about a year and a half ago if I was willing to do this, I didn't even hesitate because I've been watching this church and I've known Keith for a while now. And and Keith and Amy are amazing pastors, are they not? Can we just honor their dedication to this church? And I'm so thankful for these two. And uh, it was great early. If you've never been here early, their kids are helping out, getting stuff ready. Like they're here as a family. And so when he asked me to be an overseer and invest time, uh, it was a quick yes for me because I, I love this church. I love your pastor. And I truly believe that this church has the potential to change the East End of Long Island. I believe that with all my heart. And so for me, this was a, a clear, easy investment of time. But I get to teach here today, and, and so um, as we're going through this series of Chasing the Wind, I get to teach on Chasing the Wind regarding pleasure. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> Daylight savings time, lose an hour, an hour drive, and then I get to teach on pleasure. And I just want to let you know, off the bat, this message is G mostly, occasional PG, and I may unintentionally go into PG-13. I'll try, I'll try not to, though. <clears throat> and let me ask you a question. Let's just start like getting some of the awkwardness out of the way. What was the most pleasurable moment of your life? Just think about that for a second, right? I told you, it's going to be an interesting message. What was the most pleasurable moment of your life? And if nothing comes to mind, that may be a problem in itself. And I don't want to get too awkward here, too personal, but I actually have a picture of mine. I want to show you the most pleasurable moment of my life right there. <clears throat> that is me a long time ago skydiving. And you may think I'm doing other things wrong if that's the most pleasurable moment of my life, but I'm telling you, There was nothing like the feeling of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane (laughs) and just experiencing a free fall. And I did a whole eight hour course before, so I didn't have to go tandem. So my first jump, they jumped with me, but I I, I pulled that that ripcord and I was all alone navigating the parachute till I landed. And it truly, 
truly to this day, this was a while ago, was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I want to do it again, but my wife said, not till our youngest is 18. <laughs> then I will be able to go skydiving again. But it was such an amazing moment. And so with that being said, I want to help us define pleasure so that we can get on the same page. Because for many, when we hear the word pleasure, we really just think of it in a sexual way. And that's because you all have dirty minds. That's the issue right there. And of course, that's part of the broader definition, predominantly as a verb, but that's not the definition. So here's what I'm talking about when I'm going to refer to pleasure in this message. Pleasure is a state of gratification, the feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. So as we talk about pleasure, it can be pleasure from um, sex to shopping. It can be 100 likes on a post or playing your favorite video game. It can be watching a movie, being high, hanging with friends, or being on a vacation. I'm not saying all these pleasures are good or bad. I'm simply saying they are pleasures. And pleasure can encompass anything that is gratifying, makes you happy, and is enjoyable. Now, what we're going to wrestle with today is what's God's intent of pleasure for our life. And here's the thing. I would argue that historically, the church has done a horrible job talking about pleasure. A horrible job. There's often this mindset in the church that in essence says pleasure is the opposite of purity. That if you're a man or woman of God, pleasure will not be part of your life. It won't be something you pursue. It won't be something that you enjoy. And if there is pleasure in your life, then you're probably doing your Christianity wrong. And I'm convinced that that sort of thinking is ultimately hurtful and destructive for the people of God. And I would even go far as to say that as I look through American history and world history, I wonder if the church's repressive position on pleasure is ultimately one of the things that society rejected Christianity and went into the 60s and 70s and all that came out of that time because the church said, in essence, if there is pleasure in your life, then you're, you're, you're probably doing something wrong. Now, some of you are getting nervous about what I'm about to teach on. You can calm down. Uh, you can still hear this message with your grandma, even though I don't know if you want to hear this message with, you know, but, but I do want to say that um, uh, this message is so critical for the people of God to hear. Because even though pleasure can be good, it can also be abused, twisted, and most importantly to know, sinful. So I want us to learn about a biblically balanced view of pleasure. And we're going to start with the man, the myth, the legend himself, King Solomon. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes <clears throat> chapter 2. Um, you will notice that I'm going to cough through my message. It's because I have COVID. <laughs> I don't have COVID. Um, <clears throat> I, have, I have vocal cord damage. And so whenever I talk, I cough, which is horrific as a pastor, especially when you're doing four services. Only one side of my vocal cords vibrate, which creates the sound. So can you imagine over the last two years being someone who every time you talk, you cough? I've been a leper in society. <laughs> it has been very rough <laughs> over this time. So here we are. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
And Solomon said, come now. I will test you. He's saying this to himself. Come now. I, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. So let me catch this up real quick here. So Solomon is trying to figure out the meaning of life, right? That's the whole point of this book. That's why we're learning about it, chasing after the wind. And he turns to pleasure now and says, all right, is the joy of pleasure the ultimate in the human experience? Is pleasure while I live? Is hedonism the reason why we exist? Get as much pleasure as possible. And if you do, that's when you know you've hit the peak of what it is to exist. And so he's going to do a experiment with his life to determine this. Is pleasure enough to justify the human experience? Like with all the pain out there, can you, there be enough pleasure where you're like, okay, it's worth being alive. And he already actually has the verdict. He already knows it's meaningless. It's the vapor that it's not. But he's going to bring us along on the journey nonetheless. And so let's look at verse two, because he gives us two examples, laughter and liquor. Laughter and liquor. Verse two, he says, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Man, this guy's so depressing. Needed Zoloft. And so Solomon, he starts with this idea of pleasure using the understanding of laughter. Is it fair to say that a good, hearty laugh is intoxicating? Right? Like it is amazing to have a good, good laugh. I just came from a pastor's retreat to be here. I actually lost my flight on Saturday, had to pretty much hitchhike to Poughkeepsie to take Amtrak to Penn to get home Saturday so I could be here with you guys today. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it um, and I didn't want to be stuck upstate. But, but as I were there at this pastor's conference, um, there was this one session that we were in. And the night before, Thursday night, we stayed up till like three in the morning. And now you're going to have sessions the next day. You know, if pastors are wise, we're really stupid sometimes. And, you know, and so there was a guy right across from us in this session, and uh, he, he was falling asleep while the guy was talking. Now, this is 15 people. Like, you notice everything in a group of 15, right? And so he starts, he starts doing the nod. And what was hilarious, he's so Christian that when he would wake up, he would say amen no matter what was just said. <laughs> He was in complete auto-response. So like, oh, amen, 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 yeah. Uh. And he would just catch the inflection of the speaker's voice and assume it was a moment. And, and, and this was horrible because the, the, the guy, the, the, the speaker, was, was talking about a recent death in his family. And he's falling asleep. And me and my buddy next to us see it at the same time. We see each other, and we became 12-year-old boys. <laughs> and we started... <coughs> Ever have that moment when you just, and the more he's falling asleep saying amen, the more we're trying to swallow a laugh. Here's the thing, you can't swallow laughter. Laughter has to come out. And we got to the point where one of us finally made a, and we both lost it. 
We are belly aching in laughter. The guy talking about a dead family member, the sleeping dude jumping, waking up saying, what's happening? And we had to, we had to stop the whole session. We laughed for like five, 10 minutes. <laughs> we just had to get it out. And it felt so wrong, but so right. <laughs> and that's what laughter does. And I don't know if I'd use this language before putting this message together, but it was deeply pleasurable. It feels great. And I realize this sounds strange at first, but don't forget the big picture. He's asking, will pleasure, uh, will, will this pleasure of being with people, laughing, having a good time, ultimately satisfy his soul? Like, like is, this, is this what life is about? And of course, laughter is good. Psalm even says in the next chapter in 3 verse 4 that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. He's not anti-laughter. But I believe what Solomon is trying to say is that using laughter to solve the problems and the purpose of life is, e is eventually meaningless. It's just the vapor. It, it, it's, not, it, it's not what fulfills the soul. There has to be more. And in Proverbs chapter 14, at the end of, uh, uh, well, the middle of Proverbs, towards the end in 14, 13, he, he even says that even in laughter, the heart may ache and rejoicing may end in grief. Because laughter is temporary. And it can even be inappropriate and mask real pain. Uh, there, there's an old song. People say I'm the life of the party because I tell a joke or two. Although I may be feeling loud and hearty, deep inside I'm blue. That was a, a gift for this service. I didn't do that in the last one. That was just for you right there. And the idea is that, that song is that just because someone's laughing, they can actually have deep, immense pain that's happening. It could be masking something so much more within them. And so, no, pleasure of laughter isn't the purpose of life. So then he moves on, and he talks about wine. Now, let's be honest. I got some of your attention right now. <laughs> So, all right, he's talking about wine. What's he say? Look at verse three. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Now there's some debate here on what he means. <clears throat> when he's embracing wine, doesn't mean he's just getting blitzed. Like, you know, this guy is lit. He doesn't know what's going on. He's waking up in weird places. Doesn't mean that. Or is he like a connoisseur of wine in a way that only a rich person can be, Right? And they're dropping thousands of dollars on 100-year-old bottles and they're sniffing it and they're drinking it like, oh, yes, I, 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 I taste the bark and a little ant and, a, and, and just a, a hint of, of pesticide. This is a really good vine. I, yeah, I think there was a deer that peed near this vine 10 years prior to the grape and they're, they're just... They're a wine connoisseur, and he's just into that whole culture, and he can pair his wine with his food in such a perfect way that it maximizes the pleasure of the flavor. I, I don't know, but I personally think it's probably both. And either way, he surmises that alcohol doesn't take away the pain, and it doesn't do it. Like laughter is success. He isn't making a moral judgment on wine, but he is wondering, can it fulfill something within him? And ultimately, he says, the answer is no. It didn't. No matter how much I drank, no matter how much fun I had, it's not the answer. Yeah. It's still just a vapor. So what do we do with the words of Solomon? 
Well, as I wrestled with this message, I came up with three things that I think as a Christian, if you're truly a follower of Christ, three things as a Christian that we have to understand about pleasure. I want to go through those th these three things. I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking how it looks and give some practical examples. And so here's what I think a, a Christian needs to understand with pleasure. First is that God created pleasure. Secondly, that God created the best way to enjoy pleasure. And third, then it's our responsibility to pursue godliness in pleasure. So let's start with what I believe is the most critical point here. And that is that God created pleasure. Now, as I said earlier in this message, I don't believe that God is against pleasure. On the contrary, if he was a politician and he was trying to get your vote, he would tell you he's pro-pleasure. I believe he is. And I want you to see this. God experienced pleasure himself. For example, Colossians chapter one, verse 19. He says, uh, uh, Paul says, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. Saying God was receiving this pleasure as he looked at Jesus and it was his pleasure to get, just to, to, to see the, the, um, the fullness dwell within him, the supremacy of Jesus to all things. And God finds pleasure in his son. Yeah. Any parent gets this. Your kid comes home and shows you the report card and they're proud about it. And you feel a pleasure in the way you see what your child has done. They did well in their sport. They beat their video game. I have to fake it in that moment. I'm like, oh, great, son. I could care less, but I love you, so I'm pleased. And you get it. You find, you find this, this pleasure that you can have in the accomplishment of your children. And God God's receives this pleasure, the supremacy of Jesus. Look at creation in Genesis 1. We see all kinds of moments that help us understand this reality of God and pleasure. Chapter 1, verse 31. <clears throat> After the end of creation, it said, God saw all that he made and it was good. Like God was satisfied in what he created. He saw it and was like, man. He's like, at the Holy Spirit, give me a pound, right? Jesus, high five. Like they're looking at it like it was good. There's this moment of, of realizing the pleasure of it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were what? Pleasing to the eye and good for food. <clears throat> Pleasing. Uh, that, that's pleasure. Like, like you look <clears throat> at the trees and the gardens and nature and you receive pleasure. I, I mean, have you had moments in your life when, when you, you're just out in nature and you're just like, thank you, God. You see how beautiful, you know that no photo can capture it, right? No painting can capture it. Like you're like, this is God's creation for us. You know, he could have made the world very bland. The world could have been super boring. That's not how God made it. <clears throat> he made it beautiful. Uh, a few years back, I went to Norway. Most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. If the garden is not hidden in Norway, I don't know where it is. <laughs> I'm in Norway, and we took this, this boat ride through the fjords. 
The fjords are just the giant mountains and, and cliffs on both sides that are all over Norway that are connected to the ocean and it's all water in there. And, and you look at these things and the sun was setting. It was an, one of the most picturesque moments of my life. And I'm like, if I died right now, I think heaven would look just like this on the other side. And it was pleasurable. You walk outside these doors. You at home, you need to come just to see what's outside these doors because you're going to just see the bay. You see the water and, and you're like, this is beautiful. And you get pleasure in that. And God made the earth, hear me, so that you could get pleasure from nature. And then he even talks about the fact that there's food and it's good food, food that's tasty, food that's delicious. I love food. My goal every day is to consume 4,000 calories. You know what I mean? Not because I'm a power lifter like some people. Because I just like to eat. And so all summer I run. I'll do marathons and triathlons just so I can eat. In the winter, I just try to gain weight so I have a goal to burn something off in the spring. It's fun. But there's nothing better than just having a fantastic meal. Just you taste it and you're like the explosion in your mouth of flavor and you're like... Thank you, God, that not everything is tofu. Right? Just have that meal. You're like, praise you, Jesus. And I got to tell you, I, I think many of you that are, are older in the room would agree with me. The older I get, the higher up food gets on the pleasure count, right? It's like you can't eat as much. You're told by the doctor you can't have these things. All the more you eat, and you're like, this is so good. God creates it for us. And then in verse 18, we get a little spicier. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Looking for a relational intimacy. And then verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here in this moment, you see that there's this beautiful reality of Adam and Eve in the garden that God has made for them before the fall, and they're naked, and they're just, they're just there to enjoy the creation of God with a perfect tan. No tan lines. I don't believe they had belly buttons. Think about that. <laughs> and it's their pleasure. But here's the problem. See, again, as Christians, we think we need to choose between purity and pleasure. And I'm going to reiterate this. Purity is not the opposite of pleasure. In fact, purity is God's plan for pleasure. Purity is God's plan for pleasure. Let me give you a quote, author Randy Alcorn. He says, holiness, the idea of purity, doesn't mean abstaining from pleasure. Holiness means recognizing Jesus as the source of life's greatest pleasure. And here's the idea behind what Randy is saying. He says it all needs to start with Jesus. And when we find our fullest satisfaction and pleasure in Jesus, then we're now going to be able to understand and enjoy all the pleasure that God has, in fact, created for us. It starts with him. 
I mean, we just had a time of worship. We're going to end in a little bit with a time of worship. Worship isn't simply about the, the pleasure of the, the, the beat that is played and the, the rhythm that we hear. It's about saying, no, I get to transcend this world and worship my God and Savior right now. And I can receive the fullness of pleasure knowing who God is and how he loves me and how Jesus has died for me and how my sin has been removed as a result and how I get eternity with him. There is a pleasure that is meant to happen there when worship is about singing then you're never going to enjoy it you're never going to understand the fullness of it the worship is about connecting our heart mind and soul to who our god is and we get that and so let's let's see this a little bit more in action let's go back to adam and eve for a moment here both are naked and they felt no shame and they were to become one flesh. One flesh. Sexy time. <laughs> Some of you are wondering, why is he an overseer? I don't know. <laughs> and I want to look at sex through the eyes of these three points that I mentioned to you. All right, let's just take the, the, the obvious pleasure that when you say the word, most people instantly think about. Let's, let's boil it down to understanding it in the context of the word of God. So here was the first point I, I told you about. God created pleasure. God made it. Like, we didn't, like one day, just, you know, like, oh, I wonder what happens with this. <laughs> God's like, what are you doing? I'm thro so thrown off right now. No, <laughs> like this. <laughs> this is a God-given thing. <laughs> to humanity, like he's made this. It was his intent, it was his plan, be fruitful and multiply. And the problem in the church was that long seasons of the church, the church would say, this is only to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> no. It was always meant to be beautiful and intimate and enjoyable and pleasurable. God creates it for us to get the most out of it. And then God creates the best way to enjoy pleasure. He says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So here's the deal. This is how I'm making this thing. I'm gonna have a man. I'm gonna have a woman. They're gonna leave their parents. They're gonna come together. They're gonna have this this intimate moment that's going to start a journey of this in their life. And as they do it, this is going to allow them to become one. They're going to be intertangled. The physical reality of sex is what's happening in your soul and your spirit. It's bringing all that you are in the most vulnerable of moments and saying, we are now coming together as one. We're a new family. That's my parents' family. That's your parents' family. We love our in-laws, but it's now about us. And we're now one. And so God created the best way to enjoy this pleasure. Therefore, it is our job to pursue godliness in this pleasure. How is it meant to happen? Only one way. I know this is counterculture. I know it sounds stupid in the perspective of the world. I know it sounds outdated in the perspective of the world. But it is only meant to be enjoyed 
with a man in a woman who've made vows together to commit their lives to one another. Yet, we live in a fallen world, don't we? And as a result, we pursue culturally and individually sexual pleasure outside of the will of God. So God gives us clear boundaries. For example, the Apostle Paul says to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, flee from sexual immorality, which is anything beyond sex within marriage. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's something unique and different about this particular thing when it's not done the way that God wants it to be done. And so Paul's like, Here, here's my advice to you. You gotta flee, you gotta run from it, you gotta avoid it because it's not how God made it. It's not how he desires it for you because God has a standard. But because we want the pleasure so much, even though it's God's gift to us, and here's the thing about a gift, you never have to give a gift. I know that you got invited to this wedding, and so you feel you have to figure out how much the wedding cost, so you give an appropriate amount per head, right? That's a Long Island thing, by the way, New York, Jersey thing. I came from Pennsylvania. You gave 25 bucks, and you're like, good luck. You didn't figure out, like, am I going to go broke if I have two weddings in a summer? But a gift is optional. Like, you don't have to give a gift, and that's true with God to us, too. And even though it's his gift to us, we're so quick to ignore him and simply do what we want. It's disrespectful. I mean, it's like someone gives you a gift. It's your birthday. You open it. You look at it. You're like, this is garbage, and you toss it. How does that make the giver of the gift feel? But that's what we do with so much of the pleasure God has gifted us. We take it, and we're like, I, I, I don't want to use this gift. And is it fair to say that for many of us, we're just like, this feels too good to have to care about his standard. Or I, I need to, to do this this way to keep this relationship because this relationship's more important to me than God's standard for me. So I'm gonna put this pleasure over God's will for my life. If we're being honest, church, that's what many of us often do. If it's not about this issue, it's about other issues. Yeah. Other things that we're putting above him because it pleases us. And it's not like God has given us these rules arbitrarily. It's not like God's in heaven. He's like, I'm going to give him some dumb rules. I'm going to just give him some, I'm going I'm to put desires in them, make these rules just to see him squirm and fail. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this whole thing hilarious. I'm, I'm doing it because I'm cruel. I'm doing it because I, 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 just, I just want them to, you know, go through hardships. No, not at all. Friends, I want you to hear this. God, God gives us rules because of how much he loves us. When it comes to sex, God knows how powerful it is because he made it for us. He knows its intent of unity and bonding in one flesh. He gets it. And he also knows then that if you use it wrong, it's going to ultimately lead to pain. It's going to lead to pain. Maybe it's going to lead to, to STDs. Right? And pain! Suddenly it's like, oh man, this, this isn't a good part of my life now. <laughs> Maybe it's going to lead to unplanned pregnancy. Listen, at my church, I have a lot 
of single parents, a lot, a lot of single parents. And we, we never shame our single parents. We love them. We lift them up. We're like, this is why you need community because you're alone. But every single parent I know and minister to and care about all say, I, I, it's not meant to be just one person. Like, you, you need a team <laughs> to do this. You, you know, I wish I had someone else to help raise my child. But it can lead to unplanned pregnancy. It can lead to emotional connection without commitment. I got to tell you, the, the amount of, of, and it's younger and younger now, but the middle school and high school kids that I, I talk to that are just absolutely emotionally devastated because of a breakup. And when you get to the heart of it, it's because they were physically intimate with this person. Yeah, they would have been heartbroken otherwise, but the emotional connection as a result of becoming one flesh is so real. It's so powerful because that's how God has made it. And so it, it leads to even more uh, of an emotional distraught state because of this connection that is meant to, to be there until death do us part. It lowers self-esteem. More girls than guys, but the reality is so many teenage girls are just feeling emotionally wrecked. You're in your 20s, you're feeling emotionally wrecked and have such a bad image of yourself because you've given away so much of yourself. And sex with someone other than your spouse, obviously once you're married, well, what's that gonna do? It's gonna destroy your marriage. It's gonna tear it apart. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying this condemningly. I'm not. Uh, my wife and I, we weren't perfect in this until we got married. You know, so I'm not, I'm not saying this condemningly. I don't want you right now to be like, oh, pastor's trying to shame us. I'm not trying to shame you whatsoever. I, I just want you to hear the truth of God about this. And hear me, God loves you. And your past is your past, even if your past was last night. It's today and what's next that matters most. That, his grace is bigger than any of our past. And I, I, I'm a realist as a pastor. I, I, when I'm marrying a couple, I'm not like, you know, chatting with them like, hey, you know, Honeymoon, let's talk about it because, you know, it's going to be new to you. I'm like, guys, let's, let's talk about your past to work through it so it can be new in God when you get there. So there's not, I'm not shaming you here, but I want you to hear what God says so you can maybe have a different perspective moving forward. And so God gives us pleasure, but he gives us guidelines. Why does he give us these guidelines? Because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. <laughs> He doesn't want you to have the unnecessary pain. So he gives us rules for us. And I, I have two teenage kids. They're 14 and 16. I give my kids rules all the time because of all the mistakes I made when I was their age. Right, parents? Like, whew, we won't go down that road. And I give them rules and like, Dad, you don't know anything. Dad, you're just so old. I get called sus a lot. <laughs> you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. Like, Dad, you're so sus. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and they look at me like I'm foolish for trying to protect them of unnecessary pain. Yet we're all just like teenagers looking up at God like, come on, God, you don't know anything. God, you're so sus. <laughs> And I'm only 30 years older than my kids and I already have so much more wisdom than they do as a result of that life lived. God is eternal. Yes. <laughs> and his wisdom is unfailing. <laughs> and as I try to challenge my kids because I love them, God is challenging us. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants the best life for you, church. Not, 
Not the restricted life, the best life. And he wants to keep you safe. Yet we continue to think we know best, that we know better than God. So we're going to take what God has given us. And we're going to do it our way. We're going to use his pleasures for us in the way we think is best. And all we're going to end up doing is we're ruining the pleasure. Here's the thing about pleasure um, and sin. It's always desirable. I, I mean, if sin wasn't desirable, then, then it wouldn't be a big deal. I, I, I hate broccoli. Anyone want to say broccoli? I think broccoli is the worst tasting thing that God ever created. I, I mean, I would rather go out, for real, get an oak tree, take some leaves off, and chew on it. I'd rather, I'd rather go to a pine tree and just be like, yeah, this is delicious, then eat broccoli. Broccoli is disgusting. And if you put a plate of broccoli in front of me and you're like, Brian, it is so good. You need to eat it. I'd be like, no temptation here, man. Like, this is gross. And if that was the way sin was, then none of us would ever fall. But no, sin is pleasurable. There's a desire in it. There's something that, at least in the immediate, will bring pleasure. Not long term. It's going to hinder our relationship with God. But there's something in the immediate that's going to draw us to it. And we think, I can, I can still make this happen. I know God has a plan for me, but I, I can make it happen my own way. And I want to give you a quick example. Anyone have a sweet tooth? There's nothing better than a good cake. We get cake for celebrations, right? I mean, we live in a day and age where cake is very accessible, but you don't have to go far back in time where sugar was rare and a cake was a real treat. Like you maybe only have two or three cakes in your, your, your year because of its rarity, right? We, we just go to BJ's now and get 50 cakes for $2. <laughs> but a cake is, is meant to be a moment to celebrate, and, and it's sweet, and I, I love a good cake. I have such a sweet tooth. And, and there's a way to, to eat the cake properly. Like, you know, society, culture, um, intelligence teaches us how to eat a cake. Like, you, you're going to cut a piece, right? So this way everyone can enjoy it. And then you're going you're gonna to get that piece and you're going to put it on a plate. And then you're, you're going to use the plate, you're going to use the, the fork, and you're going to get a nice little bite of the cake and then that's a good cake. That's how it's meant to be enjoyed. That's how we're meant to get the pleasure from. That's what the, the different tools are for. But this is what we do. We're like, you know what? I bet you I can come up with a better way of eating this cake than how it's meant to be done. And uh, I'm, I just had this great idea of what would be really fun. Like, what would be really pleasurable for me in eating this cake? I'm, I'm going to give you all a piece right now. tell you that felt great like I've had a lot of pent-up anger at cake because of this like this resents that and this was a lot of fun I mean a tennis racket to cake this is pleasurable it was exciting you were in awe you're like why is he an overseer Keith what is wrong with you choosing this guy but it was great. <laughs> Except this isn't how you're meant to cut and eat cake. And even though it's pleasurable in the moment, now the cake is actually ruined. You can't eat this cake now. I mean, you can, but who would want to? Because now it's filthy. 
Now it's broken. Now it needs a lot of redemption. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what we do with the pleasure of God. He's given us a way to enjoy that is the best way to the right amount, the right proportion, and the right extent. And what we do is we say, no, I'm going to do this. And yet what we're actually doing is being barbaric to what God has given us to enjoy to the fullest. We take it and we ruin it. We wreck it. And with the pleasure that God has given us in this world, friends, we're, we're like this as opposed to this. We're gluttonous with what he has given us. You say, here's the way I want you to have it that's healthy and balanced and right. And we're like, no, I just want it all. We sin and we fall away from God and we let the pleasure of this world take over. And it becomes our God. Hedonism is the God of the culture. I mean, there is nothing that drives the American dream more than hedonism. God's saying it is ruining the soul of America and it's ruining the soul of the church because we don't see pleasure within God's created design. And when you do, you get the best of it, not the worst, not the leftovers. You get the best of the pleasure that God has created when you enjoy it within his construct. So I want you to hear these three points again. God created pleasure. God created the best way to enjoy pleasure. Therefore, it is our responsibility to pursue godliness in pleasure. When you see that and apply it to all aspects of pleasure, even food, we're not meant to be gluttonous with food, right? Enjoy it within the right parameters. You get the most out of it that is the healthiest for your mind, body, and soul. So let me conclude with the words of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes 2. He ends up saying, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Friends, until we find our deepest satisfaction first and foremost in God, and then let all things come through that, we will continue to pursue empty pleasure as the ultimate, as opposed to seeing it in its proper place. But once we really get him, we can then see pleasure in the way God intended it, as a blessing in life, an enjoyable part of life that ultimately leads us into deeper worship and even deeper satisfaction in life. So enjoy this life that God has given us. He wants us to have pleasure, but he's given us the means to get to it. Would you stand with me? I'm going to call the worship team up, and I want to close in prayer. And so, God, as we come now in a moment where we're about to worship you, God, maybe before we do that, we just need to say, God, I'm sorry. I know the word repent is, is kind of a, an older word that sometimes we run away from, but it's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible because it means I've learned something new about my God and I want to make sure that, that I'm doing the opposite of what's going to lead me away from him. I want to run to him instead. And so God, right now, may, may we just all admit that, that pleasure is more important to us than it probably should be. 
Can we all admit that we've taken aspects of pleasure and things that we've desired in this life and we've put it above God or we've been doing it outside the bounds of which God has created? May we just be willing to say, God, forgive me. God, will you show me how to enjoy this life in a way that you've created for me to enjoy it? And God, may I stop using excuses that I've created that maybe the devil's whispered into my ear that ultimately is going to lead me to a path that brings harm and pain and separation between me and you. Because God, you are the most important thing in my life. And so I give the pleasure of this world over to you and ask you to teach me, Lord God, how to enjoy it the way you've created for it. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.